Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. A podcast of Ira with Janine Stanley. Episode 7, Access in a Room Full of Elephants with Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to Access Matters. I'm Janine Stanley, Director of Customer Support and Engagement here at Ira. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month here in the United States, but all around the world, people are recognizing the value of disabled people in the workplace. This isn't a new trend. This particular acknowledgement of disability awareness has been around since the 1980s. At least that's how long I've been participating in some of these awareness activities in the Columbus, Ohio, and Orlando, Florida areas. Today, we are navigating a room full of elephants. Who knew? One of the things I wanted to be as a kid was a zookeeper. Well, I wasn't meaning it in this sense. However, my guest today is very adroit at navigating this kind of an area. Not that he's a zookeeper, but he has certainly navigated quite a number of interesting situations in his employment career. We're talking to him today, though, in his role as CEO of an agency that assists disabled people in finding gainful employment. I've known Jonathan Mosen for over 20 years and have never had this type of a conversation with him. Usually we're geeking out about audio things, but now let's enter that room of elephants with Jonathan Mosen. Welcome, Jonathan Mosen, to Access Matters. It's wonderful to be here, Janine. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I know that you are uh, almost a household word in the blindness and low vision <laughs> community, but for those folks who don't know, who is Jonathan Mosen? Uh, well, short version, it's like that old Barry Manilow song, you know, I've been alive forever or something. But uh, I have a background in broadcasting. I worked in commercial radio. I actually grew up on the radio as well. Uh, it's coming up to about 50 years since I did my first radio gig, which is truly scary. Um, started my own radio station to um, hopefully facilitate work in the broadcasting industry and did that for a while. That was really great working in radio, but eventually found a kind of a calling to do government relations in the blind community. And I love that work. I've done a lot of advocacy here. Uh, including some work that has spilled over into the international domain pertaining to copyright. What else? Oh, uh, internet radio, of course. Um, founded ACB Radio back in 1999. I've been involved in the IT industry, uh, working in a number of IT companies around the world to develop technology and product manage and a bit of communications. I ran my own consultancy company for a while. And in 2019, I became the chief executive of Workbridge, which is predominantly what we're here to talk about. Uh, and besides all of that, I'm a dad to four adult children now and a grandfather, grandfather to gorgeous yeah. little Florence, who, yeah, who was born earlier in the year. And she's absolutely adorable, uh, married to Bonnie. And um, I am a major music fan and a uh, fan of the, the game of cricket, which is not well understood or played in the United States. So got a, got a wide range of interests. And of course, also, I'd almost forgotten that I'm still running Mushroom FM, which is an internet radio station um, staffed by blind broadcasters. So that's kind of a synopsis. And you, you have omitted surreptitiously a, a great deal of what you've been up to over the last 
uh, 20, 25 years almost since I, I met you, actually. And uh, 25 years ago, just for the inside baseball here, actually in 2000, so 23 and a half years ago or so, mm. Jonathan presented a two-day workshop at ACB for those of us who were interested in getting into internet radio and possibly having a show on the then very, very young ACB radio network. And that is where I actually learned to do digital editing. I mean, I'm really proud of that because when I started ACB radio with ACB's backing, we had this vision for what it could become. But there were a lot of people who who could talk and could produce interesting content but didn't know how to do it in the digital domain. We had a lot of people with good taping-type skills, but obviously to get it on the internet, you needed some digital skills. And over time, we built up that community of blind producers who've gone on to do a range of things. This was pre-podcasting, of course. So what we built there really did lay the foundation, lay the groundwork for the blind community of podcasters and and other producers. We built that, and I'm so proud that we did. As I ask everyone who comes to Access Matters, one of the first things we like folks to do is to define the word access. To me, it's about equity. It's about being able to participate in society with the same degree of choice and flexibility as everybody else. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, that's, that's the key to what we're after. We can have these debates, for example, and, and on my podcast, which I also failed to mention. I guess I've been a bit busy and I forget to mention all the different <laughs> things. But uh, on Living Blindfully, uh, we talk a lot about, for example, iOS versus Android. What I really want is to be able to take accessibility out of the debate because there are various philosophical user interface things pertaining to the choices that sighted people make. But if we're succeeding, we shouldn't be constrained by how accessible something is. We ought to have the same range of choice that everybody else has. We have in New Zealand, by the way, subscribed to what's called the social model of disability. And this is very interesting in an accessibility context because We talk here not about people with disabilities. We used to, but now we talk about disabled people. And the reason we've made that conscious choice to talk about disabled people is that we are saying a person becomes disabled when society fails to accommodate them, when society has created some sort of accessibility barrier. And I do a lot of talk to employers, and one thing I say to them to give them an example of this is, let's say it's three in the morning, and it's pitch black outside, there's no moon, and as it happens, that's the night that there's some sort of major natural disaster or event that causes all the power, all the electricity, all the streetlights to go out. And I need to get into my office, and so does a sighted colleague. My office is on the third floor. The elevators are down, obviously, as well. Which one of us would be the disabled person at that particular time? It wouldn't be me. Because I'd still be able to know how to go in the building, navigate, get up the stairs, get into my office. It really would be no problem for me to do that. However, a sighted person has had all their accommodations taken away, the things that they've come to depend on, the street lights, the visual things. So I would be the one who would be the non-disabled person at that particular time. 
And that's why we talk about disabled people in this country. We've, we've basically said, we've challenged society and said, you've created these disabling barriers, fix them. And that speaks to the issue that um, many of us are talking about now in the blindness community. People with temporary disabilities, maybe you broke your leg or maybe you have a chronic illness that doesn't always debilitate you. But at times there are parts of that condition that do cause issues for you or society doesn't know how to accommodate you when you are dealing with those issues. That's right. We'll all experience disability sometime in our life. And the challenge that society faces is to make sure that we can continue to participate to the best of our ability by making society truly accessible and inclusive. You have held uh, many jobs, as we have uh, discussed here, but your current job is the executive director of WorkBridge. Tell us a little bit about uh, the agency and what exactly does WorkBridge do? WorkBridge is an employment agency for disabled people, so it's a pan-disability organization. And I'm really proud to work for WorkBridge because it's got a proud history of advocacy. It resonates with me. WorkBridge is now a little over 90 years. It's had various names during that history. But what inspired its formation really was soldiers coming back from the First World War and they were determined that they were not going to be put on the scrap heap. In those days, disabled people were kind of viewed as invalids to be cared for and these brave people came home and said, we're not going to accept that. We fought for our country. We've experienced injury as a result. We've still got things to contribute. There are still things we want to do. And in those earlier times, the way that that was done was to set up particular endeavours like, um, you know, certain industry workshop type environments. So it wasn't about the open employment market in those days, but it basically set that self-determination trend. We are not willing to be put on the scrap heap. And over time, the organisation has evolved in response to emerging thinking about disability. These days, we are a modern organisation with 22 offices right across New Zealand, where I'm based. And we have uh, employment consultants around the country who work with, well, I guess with, with two groups of people, broadly speaking. First, obviously, is the disabled person themselves. And we talk about positive disclosure. We talk about... Uh, building your CV, building an individualized career plan to look at where you want to go. We also, of course, know that it doesn't matter if you've got a really great product if no one's buying the product. So we do spend a lot of time working with employers, talking the language of business to business and getting them to yes, because there are so many misconceptions. And I have to say in my own life as a blind person, The biggest barrier that I've faced isn't my blindness, it's other people's perceptions of what they think my blindness limits me to do. So we do a lot of public education. We try and encourage people to understand that actually disabled people aren't the health and safety risk or the productivity risk that people often think that we are. So that's broadly what what WorkBridge does. And we, um, for me, it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done when I get a testimonial from somebody who's had their life turned around because a job is all about social circles, it's about dignity, 
It's about feeling that you belong uh, and that you have worth. People place a lot of stock in having a job to go to, and it can be very tough when you know you've got so much to contribute, but you feel like you're constantly being overlooked. Here in the United States, October, of course, is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And uh, I recall back when this started, uh, way back in the 1980s, when I started my career, which feels like forever ago, but this was the month when everyone did the dog and pony show at uh, large employers to show you all about blind people or all about deaf people or all about someone using a wheelchair, etc., etc., And it's evolved into something much, much bigger and much more significant as you were talking about employment and the importance of work. I'm sure there are many types of work that are represented through WorkBridge. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, uh, because this is something I've often heard in the disability community, but I can't work. My health, my uh, abilities, whatever, I, I can't work full time. What options are out there for people maybe who either can't work due to some physical barriers or whatever the case may be? Are there options for them? And are there things that can give them the same sort of experience? There are an increasing number of options, I think. It fascinates me slightly tangentially that over the last 40 years or so, office Offices, workplaces have become a lot more accessible. And I think in a blindness context, you know, you think of all the paper, the paper files that used to be inaccessible to us. And now everything's being done electronically. And yet there doesn't seem to have been a commensurate increase in the number of blind people in employment. And I think that speaks to the attitudinal barriers that we try to confront. But in terms of those who can't work, there will be some who just can't. And we need to support those people, let them know they are worthy. But there will be some who may be able to contribute in some way, perhaps not on a full-time basis, but but in some form to add some value and, and contribute their worth and their skills. So I think the pandemic, in a way, did us a bit of a favour in this regard because a lot of workplaces had to confront working from home, the fact that you can actually get really great value really great uh, contributions from an employee without hovering over them and requiring them to be in an office at a particular time. And flexible working arrangements obviously suit a wide range of disabled people very much. I'm somewhat concerned to see that trend swinging back the other way again. There are some employers... I was to ask you about that, if you are seeing that in in the, the employers that you work with and, and how you're handling that actually as an agency. We are seeing it and it's a real disappointment. I guess when you go through a major crisis like the pandemic, you tend to be quite optimistic and you think we'll never go back to the mm. way we were. And disabled people at the time were saying, wow, we've been asking for some of these accommodations for years and now all of a sudden, because they apply to everyone, we're getting them. They're flowing like water. But now we're seeing employers saying, get back to the office. We want everybody in here. We're worried about you know, people not contributing. And we just constantly make the point, well, what really matters here? Surely it's the quality of what's being delivered rather than where it's being delivered from. And actually... There are savings to be made in requiring less office space for businesses. The biggest bill that an employer has is usually the wage bill. 
And the next biggest bill that they have is bricks and mortar, actually places to be. So if you can reduce those costs, particularly in an area where the cost of living is high, inflation is high, there's upward pressure on wage bills. So you're looking to, to make any savings that you can. And we just make the point, look, if you're too stringent about this, you may be leaving some really capable people on the bench. And if you do that, somebody else will take advantage of that competitive advantage and get the worker that you missed out on. And if there's one thing that businesses don't like, it's giving a competitor some sort of edge. And that's how we market it. You know, it's interesting that you talked about Disability Employment Month, say, 40 years ago. And I think in a way it was viewed in those days Perhaps it was starting to change, but there was certainly a, a, a large dollop of look at how good we are for taking on these handicapped people. And actually, handicapped mm-hmm. was a term that was used a lot back then. Aren't we great? And what we're trying to do at WorkBridge is to say, we're not asking for your pity or your charity. We're actually making a case that employing disabled people makes really good business sense because we're lateral thinkers. We are natural problem solvers. We've got to be to succeed in a disabling society. Uh, We bring a perspective that you otherwise wouldn't get. So don't employ us out of the goodness of your heart. Employ us out of the goodness of your bottom line. Very good point. Well, let's start at the beginning of the employment process. So there are a lot of aspects to this portion of the employment process. But let's talk a little bit about that interview, that initial meeting of person and employer and the big issue, the big elephant on the table, disclosure. Hmm. We encourage a concept called positive disclosure, where we suggest that people own their impairment and that they are upfront about it and that they deal with the elephant in the room in a positive way. So we encourage our customers that we work with to say, well, I'm sure you're wondering about how I would do this job with my particular impairment. Uh, Here's how it would work. Now, you know, some people choose not to do that and they absolutely have the choice not to. For some, it's kind of obvious. Like if you look at my CV, it's got blind, 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 blind all over it, you know, (laughs) and and so it's a kind of a giveaway. There are some Many people who don't necessarily have a CV like that, and they can choose not to disclose if they want because it is illegal to discriminate on the grounds of disability. And you kind of wonder when you disclose, are you being denied an interview because somebody's making an assumption? So I think the question then becomes, well, when do I disclose? If you can get away with submitting a letter of application and your CV and seeing if you get an interview without disclosing. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that because if what employers are seeking to do is finding any excuse to filter the pile of applications and put people into the no pile. And you just never know whether they've got misconceptions and they think, oh man, you know, a blind person, this is just too much trouble. How will they get around and, you know, a blind person wouldn't be safe in our workplace. So they just chuck them in the no pile. If you're able to get to the interview without disclosing, but then in the interview, you own it, you're up front. You say, look, it's not the big deal you think it is. That's probably the best place to be. Now I'm going to bring up the other big elephant in the room here in the U.S. anyway, 
and that is the AI-based uh, sorting of those resumes and CVs that come in, all of the job applications that come in, and the dreaded line, driver's license required. Mm. It is incredibly frustrating, and I spend a lot of time with employers talking them through this. They are unfortunately fixated on the how rather than on the what. Uh, there are many – I mean, obviously, if, if you're looking at a job as a truck driver or a taxi driver or something like that, then fair enough. But so often I talk to employers and I say to them, why have you got that driver's license requirement in this ad? And they say, well, we want them to be able to get to work on time and also sometimes they need to go out to appointments or they need to get from A to B. And I make the point, look, you are prescribing how they do that. What actually matters is that they do it. If you've got a disabled person who doesn't drive, but they have good mechanisms in place to get from A to B, whether it be a team of volunteer drivers or subsidized transportation or carrier pigeon, what matters is that they get there. And it's not really the employer's concern how they get there. And again, I make the point to them, if you constrain your pool of talent based on who has a driver's license, you may be missing out on your next rock star employee. I think the key thing is to try and appeal to what drives and motivates a business, and that is having the best possible team they can to do the job. And that's why I keep coming back to, look, you may be limiting the team that you get, and you may be missing out on someone really good. I was surprised that one employer answered that question once by saying, oh, we use that as a a legal form of ID. I said, call it a legal form of ID then. Don't call it a driver's license and do not use the uh, whatever sorting tool you use to filter out those without a quote-unquote driver's license. Yeah, I really would like to see this reined in. Our Human Rights Commission here, um, I've talked to them in the past about some sort of campaign around this because uh, it's it's not – acceptable, really, that very capable people are ruled out for an extremely nebulous reason. We have a lot of elephants today in my office, uh, not the (laughs) least of which being my guide dog, who is over here having a dream right now, which hopefully will not get too much louder. But uh, as many of us approach that midpoint in our careers and we want to either make a lateral move, make a vertical move, make some kind of change to our careers... I I find, you know, a glass ceiling of sorts out there. Is that your perception too, or is that also changing a bit? No, there can be. There can be. I actually left one particular job many years ago now because I hit that glass ceiling and uh, they brought somebody in who was completely unskilled and unqualified uh, in the area that we were working. Mm. Uh, and and this this does happen to blind people. And I was very fortunate in that I had a bit of a profile and was able to move on to another company who was quite glad to have me. Uh, But not everybody's in that position. So, no, I absolutely believe that that can exist. And this is one of the challenges that certainly we have at the moment. We have a contract with a government ministry in New Zealand, and it's quite transactional. It's really based on how many people we enroll into our service how many people we place and how long they stay. So that contract is a lot about jobs and not necessarily careers. 
And disabled people are entitled to a career journey. They're entitled to have a trajectory that sees them gaining in responsibility as they gain experience. And it saddens me that certainly in this country, I am, I think, still the only chief executive mm-hmm. of a major disability provider in this country who, um, who is disabled. I left my last job because I had hit a ceiling based on accessibility of the tools that we used. I probably could have taken other positions, but at that time there was nothing out there that would allow me to access those tools. Yeah, see, see, without getting too specific, I know what your last job was. And I, isn't it interesting that that was an employer who works in the blindness space? And I, I see this a lot where we cannot expect society to do what we say, but not what we do, right? That's hypocrisy. And this really gets me quite frustrated. So when I came to Workbridge, for example, I found that I could not approve my staff's leave, those staff who report to me, because the annual leave system was completely inaccessible. There are a whole bunch of things like this. So we implemented a 100% accessibility policy and we threw out all the tools that were inaccessible. We built a customer relationship management system based on Salesforce, and we designed it specifically to be accessible. So we actually custom built it, but accessibility was a bottom line, and on and on it goes. And then that means that I can actually hold my head up high and go to an employer and say, this is what we've done to create an accessible workplace. Every building that we work in before we choose to work in it goes through an extensive accessibility vetting process. If those of us in this sector can't get that right, we have no moral authority to preach to others who can't be expected to get it right because they don't really know what getting it right means, but we do. So it's a conscious decision to exclude blind people or disabled people, and it's not tenable. I completely agree, and I've been very lucky through the iterations of IRA that we've maintained that philosophy. If we can't find an accessible software, we're not going to do whatever it is we need to do. So, mm. uh, And we've been very lucky in that we have found, and you mentioned Salesforce. It's a fantastic tool. I'm yes. right now going through a Salesforce administrator training, and I am pleasantly shocked at how much of that process is absolutely accessible 100%. So now I have no excuses. It's me and my abilities. It's, uh, you know, I have no barriers rather than excuses, but no barriers to get in my way. I can just go and take on this new challenge. And there is some pragmatism required here. So this is a plug for Ira because when (laughs) I found that I couldn't approve my staff's annual leave, it still had to be approved or they'd be very grumpy at Christmas time and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I would use Ira before we could replace that software because replacing software takes a lot of thought and selection and time. So I would call an Ira agent regularly and uh, use TeamViewer to approve annual leave for my staff. And I think this is where we must advocate for a more accessible society. But in the interim, we have to get on. We, we've, we've got to be able to do our jobs. And this is where IRA in the workplace can be so helpful. 
certainly. And just for those of you out there who are thinking, oh, great, I can just deploy IRA and it will be fine. They'll have that sighted person. We absolutely will tell you, much as we'd love to take your money, we are not the be-all and end-all. We are a stopgap measure until you can make the process completely accessible to that person in the way that they want it to be, in the way that they need to best accomplish their needs, which might be IRA, but which also might be a completely accessible program when using a screen reader or a braille display or eye control switch, anything like that. Absolutely. So it's got me out of a bind on several occasions. And as I say, it was a brilliant stopgap. And um, now we've got very accessible systems and approving annual leave is just a couple of clicks. Well, while we're talking technology, you've had a lot of roles in technology (laughs) companies. Uh, Lots of assistive technology has passed under your fingers over the years. What do you think of AI and its role and how AI and people with disabilities are going to mesh or disabled people are going to mesh in the future? It's very exciting. Uh, Like any new technology, it has risks. I mean, clearly, when we look at the Internet itself, it's brought us together in remarkable ways and it's allowed us to compare notes as a blind community and get to know one another and that's absolutely brilliant but obviously the internet also has brought us social media drama and misinformation and so any technology can be used for good and ill and we've got to be vigilant but when I look at some of the new technologies that are emerging and I can take a picture for example of a document and there will be times when I just want that document read to me um, what's on the page But there will be times when I might want some analysis. I can take a picture at a restaurant of a menu and then ask it for the lowest carb option or what steaks are on the menu or what's the cheapest thing on the menu or any number of things. You can interrogate a document. Now, obviously, the downside is hallucinations. Where we're at at the moment with the large language models is that sometimes they just make stuff up and they sound incredibly compelling when they do. And I've had that a couple of times where, you know, it was it was just so convincing in its um, recounting of what it thought I could see in a picture. So we'll always have to be vigilant. It's sometimes difficult to know when to trust it. But look, there's so much that is positive going on. On the flip side, another thing that we need to think about, though, and you mentioned it briefly, is uh, AI in the recruiting process. Mm-hmm. And these models can inherit biases uh, that that human beings have. At least when you've got a human on the other end, you might find a few that are reasonable and you can engage with them and say, look, I know you think you've got a problem here uh, interviewing this candidate, but actually you've got an opportunity. You can't have that kind of dialogue with AI because it's... um, It's got algorithms, it's making judgments based on what it's been told to judge on. And that is a real concern. So this is where I think the blindness consumer movement around the world has to be around the table, has to be monitoring this, has to be consulted. And I think that's a very good reason. I think many of us said, oh, my goodness, we don't need to be involved in this. This is, you know, this is wonderful for the disability community. It's going to provide us access to things and provided we can live with the hallucinations. But I think the point that you bring up here about 
AI in recruiting in various aspects of jobs, designing jobs, maybe designing uh, the whole corporate movement throughout the company could definitely be uh, not in our favor. So something to be very, very cognizant of. I think the term nothing about us without us has become such a cliche that I try not to use it anymore. But look, in this case, it's really appropriate. There is a big, bold new future unfolding right now. And governments around the world are starting to think about this. What kind of regulation is required to keep us safe as a species? And that sounds very dramatic, but it isn't. I mean, we're on the cusp of some quite remarkable change. And too often, disabled people get left out of those discussions. And that's disastrous because it's always harder to retrofit things, whether it be a building or an artificial intelligent environment or software or whatever it is. But if you can be involved in this process in a a spirit of co-design, you're more likely to get the foundations right. And it's really important that we are there. We've got to be heard on all of these new challenges and opportunities that we're facing. We are looking, speaking of design, at things like Figma, which is one of the tools that a lot of uh, user design specialists use becoming more accessible because while it was wonderful to have us in the design process, there was really no way given some of the tools that UX designers actually used that we could be part of the process. So it's nice to see some of these tools actually allowing for that to happen. Yeah, I, I think sometimes for those of us who have done a lot of advocacy, we forget how far we've come and one of the best things that I've done in you know recent years, uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe more, uh, I discovered meditation and I keep a gratitude journal. And I find that that helps me to stay grounded because as somebody who has been fortunate enough to have affected quite a few significant changes, many for, for my country and some globally. I think sometimes you can get very frustrated with the pace of change because we're living this day to day and the pace can seem slow. But if I actually look back at how what it means to live as a blind person in Western countries 40 years ago versus now, we've come an extraordinarily long way in terms of access to information. We've got challenges in terms of the cost of that access still, and uh, the the fact that blind people are far overrepresented in lower socioeconomic statistics. So the technology exists and some people just can't get their hands on it. And that is a really important social policy question. But broadly speaking, we've come a long way in terms of reading newspapers, shopping independently, just basically participating in the public discourse. It's been remarkable progress. So we're getting there. And I think, if anything, awareness of our needs is actually increasing. Getting that built-in versus bolted-on part of it in a large company setting like Apple, like Microsoft, I think really pushed things forward down the road. Yeah. I mean, and that's a good thing and a bad thing because one of the challenges we face from the larger mainstream tech companies is that we are a drop in the bucket in terms of their total user base. And yet if there is a bug that is accessibility specific, something that goes wrong with a new version of a built-in screen reader in an operating system. It can be debilitating. 
and it may take some time to fix simply because we are that tiny fraction of the user base. And if you are purely looking at this through a profit lens and you think, okay, I got a big pile of uh, bugs here, which one should I address with the limited engineering resources I've got? You would probably say, well, the one that affects the most people. And that means that, you know, when you hand over our technological sovereignty, if you will, to these mainstream companies, we may get our priorities pushed further down the chain. And that's why it's really important that there be some sort of intervention to make it clear that uh, even though we are a small group, the impact of these bugs is so significant that you've got to look at it through a different lens than simply how many people is this affecting. And I think that this is really starting to impact on employment because if you are using a mainstream device with a mainstream company screen reader and you don't have any alternatives, then you really are in a very vulnerable position, at least in Windows. You know, if Narrator doesn't work for you, you've got a number of alternatives, one of which is very good and free. But in the Apple ecosystem, you don't have that option. If, if, if Apple drops the ball and does something that affects, say, your access to Braille or your access to a particular application, and they take their sweet time about fixing it, it could potentially put our jobs on the line, and we've got to hold the line on uh, holding those companies accountable. Let's talk about some advice for people who are out there either looking for a job or looking to make a career change. What would you tell them from where you sit right now? What would your best advice be for their <laughs> Probably from where I sit right now, I'd say don't be a chief yeah. executive. <laughs> no, um, no it, I, it's a privilege, really. It's just really hard work. But you didn't get there, you know, by by just sort of sitting around and hoping things would happen. Though I'm sure there were no. people along your way who said, "Okay, you know what? I think you should probably concentrate on this." It's an interesting question that Bonnie, my wife, says to me. You're the most motivated person I know, and and I, it's kind of sad to me because I think w what I'd like to do, and it comes back to the whole accessibility discussion we had earlier. I want to just see a world where you don't have to be so incredibly driven mm -hmm. to get ahead. And I, I think I am an unusually driven person and for, for better or worse, you know, I mean, that, that has its consequences. But in terms of actual practical advice, talking to people, building your networks is really important. And one thing I've learned over the years, actually, I think Dale Carnegie said this like over 100 years ago, but I learned it the hard way, <laughs> is people actually really like to talk about themselves. And I have been at forums where there have been speeches given by very senior executives of rather large companies, including chief executives of rather large companies. And what I found was if I go over to them and I shake their hand and I introduce myself and I tell them, you know, that was a really amazing speech. Uh, I'm very interested in your industry. Would you mind just giving me half an hour of your time so I can you know, learn a bit more about your industry and about you and you know, what you've achieved and how you got to where you are? It's amazing what happens. I mean, if I just call up the office and talk to the personal assistant of that chief executive, I'll never get through, you know. Mm -hmm. They'll just say, oh, they're too busy. But when you make that personal approach and you're a bit cheeky, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I know that some people get a bit nervous about this, but if 
they say no, it's not going to hurt you, right? I mean, it's you're not going to be any worse off than you were. But there's a chance they'll say yes. And there's a chance that that kind of what I call an informational interview gets your foot in the door in an industry that you otherwise wouldn't be able to tap into. And they remember you because not many people have the gumption to do that. So I would definitely be a major promoter of the informational interview. You don't hide your light under a bushel. Let yourself be known because there's a little secret in the recruitment industry, and that is that a lot of jobs are not advertised. There's a cost involved in advertising, and there's a cost involved in recruiting. And if you get yourself on their radar and you establish your credentials and they think, yeah, yeah, I I remember this person, then they may just shoulder tap you rather than advertise the position. So that's the one thing I would say. And the second thing, and this is probably the last, is try and be an objective self-critic. This is really, really tough. Um, Understand where you're weak and see if there are ways that you can address that weakness, whether it be through training or obtaining advice or whatever it is. But it's important to do that without beating yourself up. And when you're faced with job rejection after job rejection, it can be very hard not to lose your mojo and to think, you know, I, I I am useless, you know, to absorb all of this negativity. It's really, really hard. So if you can have a cheerleader in your life who can help you with that. And just finally, actually, there is one more, and that is that if you are looking for work, I think it's really important to have a structure in your day. So I have faced some periods of unemployment, and what I found worked for me was to write the job ads in the morning when I was really fresh, you know, write the write the job applications in the morning, and the Uh, Polish the CV, make sure that you do a CV that is customized to the role that you're applying for. If you really want it, don't send something generic off. Look at the job description and tweak your CV to match the job description as much as you can. And then in the afternoon, I would do training. I'd learn something. You know, there's so much free training from the assistive technology companies out there now. And you can read all sorts of other material online for free. You can basically make sure that you've got the best skills you can for when you've got the opportunity to to land the job. So I guess all of this boils down to this. There's one job that you are certain not to get, and that's the one you don't go after. Great advice. And I can vouch for that networking advice. It's certainly what got me where I am uh, at this very moment. There you go. networking. <laughs> So, Jonathan, how can people find you out there? Well, probably the way a lot of people do is um, via Living Blindfully, which is the podcast that I produce. We tend to do about two hours of content a week. And it's just amazing to me how that podcast took off. It wasn't really meant to. Uh, It was a way for me initially to just keep in touch with the community a bit. But now we've got listeners in 113 countries and uh, many thousands of listeners. So you can go to livingblindfully.com to find out more about um, that podcast and, and listen to it. And if you're interested in WorkBridge and what we do, particularly if you're living in New Zealand, of course, you can go to workbridge.co.nz and we have our toll-free number there that you can call. 
and we've got a great team of employment consultants who are passionate about what they do, what they do, and they'd love to be able to assist. And Living Blindfully is available, of course, in all the major podcast apps and yes. services out there. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining me in this first episode of our National Disability Employment Awareness Month coverage here on Access Matters. It's an absolute pleasure, Janine. Thank you again for the invitation and thanks for all you're doing uh, with the employment initiatives at IRA as well. You can learn more about Jonathan and find helpful links to his podcast at https colon slash slash livingblindfully.com. Learn more about WorkBridge at https colon slash slash workbridge.co.nz. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can email us at accessmatters at ira.io. You've been listening to Access Matters with Janine Stanley. This podcast is a production of Ira Tech Corp. To learn more about visual interpreting, visit our website, http colon slash slash ira.io or email us at access at ira.io.